We are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 68, which is the Ted Bundy murders. Murders. (laughs) Murders. Plural. He's a murderer. Murderer. Yes. So before we jump into this, there's a lot here folks so um this is going to be um a two-parter maybe three-parter so just hold on to your butts and let's let's get through this but before we do that um let's talk some business business so of course we want to shout out jeremy he has been killing it with the pictures he's been creating he his last one for um, I Love You Now Die was amazing. And we just were loving the stuff that he's putting out. Yeah, way better than we could do. Hopefully you guys are loving it too because we think it's great. Yeah, Very there's, there's so much detail like in the pictures that you might not even catch like our logo here or something like that. So uh, shout out to him. You can follow him um, on Instagram and he is at rust hate no that's not right what is it do you know what it is rachel not off the top of my head but yeah I no i was right i, I was, I was right. Say, i thought that did sound right rust hate 77 <laughs> is 77. his name yep. yeah so go give him a like and um just show him how much we appreciate him because we do yeah the images are just really artistic and thoughtful like very thoughtfully done Oh yeah. So creative. Very creative. Loving it. And it might not be like PG 13, but who's listening to our show. That's PG 13. Yeah. Hopefully no children are are on here. (laughs) Don't listen to us with children, especially on Ted Bundy because they won't sleep. No. (laughs) As always like share and subscribe to us on um, Instagram, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, we would really like to get some uh, five-star reviews on Apple. Right now, um, we're at a 4.6. So anything you can do there, we would love it. Very much appreciated. Yeah. We have still have stickers available. Get them while they're hot. Mm-hmm. This is a promotional deal. $3, whichever sticker you like. If you like the OG logo or you like the true kind till you die um all the stickers have been mailed out that have been ordered so far if you get yours just snap a pic with you and your sticker and tag us in yeah. it show us your pretty faces yeah we by the time see this it. episode comes out we might not have a lot of stickers left so this is a call to action yeah do it if you've been thinking about it now is the time even a- better patreon <laughs> yes that's the best deal in town i'm pretty best sure Can't so find if, a better one if you subscribe to either patron the two dollar tier or the five dollar tier we're gonna let you pick out a sticker and send it to you these stickers if you buy them or if you do patreon we're gonna send you a handwritten note saying we love you and we appreciate a love you letter of sorts yeah i mean who does that we do us that's right <laughs> So feel free. You can join us on patreon.com backslash mystery history podcast. Or if you go to our link tree profile, there's a link there or send us a message and I'll send you the link. If you look us up there, you'll be able to find us. 
-hmm. Still going to be plugging the Discord till the end of time. We're getting action on there. People are are on there talking. I I love love it. it. I I do too. That's great. That's why we do this show is to talk to folks. And that just makes me happy, especially like-minded individuals that like creepy things talking together. It's fantastic. I have not been very actionable on there lately, but I've also just barely been hanging on. So in about a week, I'll be better. (laughs) But I've been looking and watching and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many people on here now, like talking about, it's great. And using our channels. So we've got channels for uh, book suggestions, movies, meetup destinations, which we're still working on doing episode ideas that we are recording on so if you guys have any ideas of anything you want to hear let us know and mm-hmm. we'll do it <laughs> we will we will do it we we did it um lc lc yeah. uh suggested i love you now die and we did it i mean we did it so we could do yours too just get on there and tell us what you want yeah for sure another thing that's fun talking about communication and whatnot is voice messages. So you can leave on anchor. You can leave us a voice message. You can do it on Instagram. We would love to hear your, your voice and we will play it on the show. So please send us a voice message. Yeah. Tell us what you like. We're sick of talking. We want to hear you talk. Yeah. We want to hear you (laughs) do it now. (laughs) All right. Well, do you have anything else, Rachel, for the business? No, I don't think so. All right. Why don't you take us away on this adventure? <laughs> That's right. very depressing. <laughs> it is depressing. I feel like a lot of people have already heard about Ted Bundy, maybe have watched some documentaries. So hopefully we can give you guys a little bit more information. But also in this format, I feel like it's a little bit easier to take it all in when you're I- just listening to it. I did the notes for this and he has got so, I mean, he killed so many people and, mm-hmm. and I tried to tell more about the victim, like things that they liked and, and tried to showcase them because a life yeah. was lost and that's super sad. Um, but I tell you, after I was done with these notes, I was just like, I can't do it anymore. Like I, I just need, it's heavy. It's just heavy. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Well, here we go. Yep. Starts on off. Theodore Robert Bundy was born on November 24th, 1946, in a home for unwed mothers by Eleanor Louise Caldwell, known as Louise. Her parents had sent her there, as many parents did, to their pregnant daughters during this time. Louise considered placing Ted up for adoption, but her father, Sam Caldwell, wanted the baby to join their family in Philadelphia. In Philly, he was known as Theodore Caldwell, and he was told that his mother, Louise, was actually his sister, and his grandparents were really his mom and dad. So not a great start. That's very confusing. No, that is a surefire way to F someone up. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's how it was in in the 40s and the 50s. You know, unwed mothers were a big deal. Bad, bad. Yeah. So it's lucky that I guess he was still close to his family, even with this weird arrangement. Um, Mm -hmm. But the the Caldwells were a normal-ish family. Every family's got their problems. So did the Caldwells. Uh, But Bundy's grandmother, Eleanor, 
um, thought to be his mother, suffered from depression and agoraphobia. And I had to look that up. And it means that it's the condition where you fear and avoid places or situations that are unfamiliar to you or you have little control over. So pretty much anywhere outside the home. Yeah. People with agoraphobia always like, I feel like a lot of times they stay home. They don't go anywhere. Yep. Mm -hmm. His grandfather, Samuel, known as his father, uh, had a terrible temper and would hurt cats, dogs, employees, and family members. Some experts believe that Louise was actually raped by her father, Sam, but Louise stated that Ted's father was a war veteran who abandoned them. Back up. Did you not just start this out by saying they were, were a normalish family? I mean, the ap- outside appearance. Okay. okay. <laughs> so the skeletons are in the closet and we are opening that door up. Got you. I was going to say, I know your family and none of this was going on. You're in mine. So what do you mean normalish? Yeah. I mean, All I right. guess for so, a serial killer, normalish, maybe. Normalish, sure. Agoraphobia <laughs> is not that bad compared to what some other yeah. serial killers went through. But yeah. All right. So Ted was a strange boy. His aunt said that on one occasion, she woke up to find Ted as a toddler placing knives around her body as she slept. She told Vanity Fair, I remember thinking at the time that I was the only one who thought it was strange. Nobody did anything. So maybe not a normal family. I don't know. I'll take it back. Well, I mean, he wasn't normal. No, I see what you're saying. Like from the outside, you got a mom, a dad, a sister, and a little boy. And it's all like honky-dory. I get you. I get what you were going for there, but didn't work out need some clarification (laughs) when you roll into like dad hurt people and raped everyone and the mom was afraid to leave the house so yeah I get you I don't know yeah this toddler placing knives around her body as she slept that's weird that is weird at least he wasn't trying to stab her I mean that would be even more weird maybe it would have likes knives too though my toddler boy yeah but he doesn't too tall toddler boy he probably just likes them because you tell him no yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we'll find I out. I mean, I do, I do tell him no, but one of my favorite, I think we have a picture of it, was on his birthday. I think it was his second birthday. I can't remember. Well, it must have been. Uh, we had like a huge knife out for the cake and he, and we know we put it on the counter, you know, both of my kids are gigantors. There is no purpose for how tall either of them are. And he can reach everything on the counters, even though he shouldn't be able to at two. Mm-hmm. Um, and he comes around the corner with that huge knife with icing all over it. And he's holding it like freaking like Michael Myers, like he's going <laughs> to do something with it. And it's almost as big as he is I'm like, Oh my gosh, this kid, he's nuts. <laughs> but off topic, maybe, Lu- maybe young boys are just into knives. <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> Luis and Ted left Philadelphia when he was three and they moved to Tacoma, Washington with her boyfriend, Johnny, who was an army hospital cook. Since this was a new place, no one would question the illegitimacy, I really struggle with that word, uh, of Ted. So Luis changed his last name from Cowell to Nelson before they moved. Moving was incredibly hard on Ted. He really missed Philly and was very jealous of Johnny because he was stealing away all of her attention. Luis and Johnny married in 1951, and that's when Ted's behavior really started to decline. He would start throwing tantrums in public, and he would wet his pants in public, which, ugh, that sucks. That sucks. 
Um, it's just not a good time. This five. Yeah. That's great. And in public, I mean, what are you going to do? Right. This, This did not stop Johnny from wanting to adopt Ted and him and Luis were married in 1951. The, and they, they changed Ted's last name for the third time to Bundy. So now we know. Gotta be confusing. Yeah. Because he doesn't know what his name is. I mean, or why he would move with his sister and her, yeah. you know, that's just very, yeah, that would be very hard. Yeah. For a little kid. It's rough. They did not live an extravagant lifestyle, but that is what Ted wanted. He loved materialistic things such as expensive clothes, and his stepfather could not provide that. Ted fantasized about being adopted by Western stars Roy Rogers and Dale Evans so they could give him everything he wanted. As Ted grew older, he thought of his stepdad as unintelligent. Friends would watch as he would provoke his stepfather, who would hit him in frustration. Yeah. Kids can be little jerks. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. It does. Louise always took care of Ted, but she then went on to have four more children. So all of her attention was not on him. Mm-hmm. And throughout school, Ted lacked seeing social cues and he was teased for having a speech impediment. He joined the Boy Scouts and couldn't keep up with them. Ted wasn't bad as an athlete, but he didn't make his school's baseball or basketball teams. And he wasn't a fan of failure. Hmm. Who is? So he didn't. Yeah, I mean, nobody... Mm-hmm. likes failure but it was enough to put him off of it as a whole mm-hmm. in high school he was known as a loner and only went on one date he stated later that it wasn't like i disliked women or were afraid of them it was just that i didn't seem to have any inkling as what to do about them <laughs> so it sounds like he just i mean social things weren't his forte yeah couldn't really some- handle Sometimes whenever you're afraid of failure too, it's better just to not put yourself out there because then rejection isn't a thing, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Avoid so as not to be hurt. Yep. Uh, Ted was smart and he had good grades. He said that while in class, your performance is measured by different rules than what happens when everybody's peeling off into little clicks down the hallway. He did well, but he wasn't at the top of his class. Um, He did have a few friends and a few jobs like delivering newspapers and cutting lawn. He went to church with his parents and became the Methodist Youth Fellowship's vice president. That's That's pretty good. I mean, it, yeah. And that's like interesting considering he, it sounds like socially, he wasn't really putting himself out there a lot. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty high standing in any, in something Um, to everyone. He seemed like a well-adjusted stand-up guy. He even saved his friend's niece from drowning one summer. Which is not something typically that a killer would do. No. Unless no. he threw her in the water <laughs> first. And it was like, Changed oh, I'm going to save you. Yeah. <laughs> Ted did sometimes forget to hide his odd behavior. He was known for loving to scare people. A fellow Boy Scout said that one time Ted had come up behind him to hit him over the head with a stick. Okay, he would that's oh, not scaring someone. <laughs> that's hurting them <laughs> salt brother <laughs> he will dig this one well no pun intended he would also dig holes 
Yeah, he would dig holes in the ground and he would put stakes inside them. So like sticking oh up in the holes and cover them with weeds. One girl fell in and hurt her leg from falling in one of these holes. So that's like a medieval torture type situation. What an a-hole. Yeah. That's not cool. No, she oh could have been God. impaled. It sounds like she might have been impaled. Maybe. Maybe it just scratched, but oh my gosh. I'm like thinking about that. Just like out minding your own damn business and stepping in a hole with a stake in the bottom of it. Yeah. Ugh. Not cool. Not cool at all. Uh, Ted loved to read detective novels with pictures of rape and murder. This escalated quickly. Mm-hmm. Not really. I guess the whole thing was pretty much a sign. Yeah. <laughs> he, started, <laughs> he started looking at porn long before he was a teenager and it's believed that he had um access access his grandfather's collection when he was living in philly so like when he was five i guess i mean i guess you're curious at an early age i i would assume i don't know a little bit early for me yeah uh ted would masturbate inside closets at his junior high and his classmates would catch him and throw water on him (laughs) what i feel like this must have happened many times for it to be mentioned (laughs) yeah and yeah. <laughs> yeah it says that they would catch him like it happened a few times like this is a thing they do now he does like, it uh, so often ted's in the closet again get i the- feel like you would <laughs> not get away with that nowadays you are not allowed to do that no um as a teenager he was known to steal he was a great skier and would take ski equipment he wanted but he couldn't afford he would forge lift tickets so he could ride the slopes for free He one time attempted to steal a car and was also a peeping Tom who liked to spy on strangers. Busy. Mm -hmm. Busy kid. When Ted was 14, Ted lived a few miles from an eight-year-old's house, Anne-Marie Burr. Oh, no. In 1960, she disappeared from her home in the middle of the night. The police searched for clues, and there was an open window, a footprint, and an unlocked door. Anne-Marie's parents and sister were in the house when she vanished. Anne-Marie's mother thought that her daughter had known her abductor, which is why she went with this person without causing a scene. It's believed that Ted met Anne-Marie while on his paper route or while visiting his uncle who lived in her neighborhood. Ted denied being responsible for Anne-Marie's disappearance. Ted never admitted to her murder, but hinted while in custody later that there were more victims. Anne's mother wrote to Ted while he was awaiting his execution and he denied it still. In 2011, existing evidence did not contain enough to compare to Bundy's profile. That sucks that there wasn't enough at that point to trace it back to him. Yeah. So I there's just think, like, the last decent thing you could do before you die is to, like, tell a mother to put her at peace if you did do it, you know? Yep, yep. Uh, Ted graduated from high school in 1965 and then enrolled in the University of Puget Sound. He spent a year before, um, I'm sorry, he spent a year there before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese. I don't know why you do that, but he one wanted to friends, know. One of my friends uh, did that. I feel she like that would be super hard. Mandarin. Yeah, I I have never, I think, heard her speak Chinese, though, now that I'm saying this. We worked together before. Um, I don't think she actually ever really used that degree after, after I had known her. But 
they do that because you can go work for businesses and be, what is that freaking called? My brain. Like a consultant or something. Yeah. A translator. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Like a translator for, for businesses and stuff. I mean, I think you can make some decent money doing that. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And it's a very common language. Mm -hmm. So lots of people speak it. Um, So anyways, Ted met Diane Edwards, otherwise known as Stephanie Brooks in his junior year. Why is this a otherwise known as those are two very different names. So in, okay. So currently I am reading Anne Rule's book, the stranger beside me. Mm -hmm. So she's gone by a couple different names because of she wants to keep her anonymity. So basically it's just to keep, so I don't really know which one is her real name. Because she doesn't want to be found pretty much. But I'm pretty sure it's Diane Edwards is her real name. Like her original name. And now she goes by other things. Okay. She was from a well-off family and presented the ideal of what Ted wanted. He described her as a beautiful dresser, beautiful girl, very personable, nice car, great parents. Ted believed he felt like she was out of his league. Over the summer, Diane felt that she didn't have a future with Ted and that he didn't have drive and career goals she was looking for in a long-time relationship. She believed that he used people, that he would become close to people who might do him favors and then took advantage of them. This breakup destroyed Ted. Yeah, he was super bummed about this. So he actually, because of the breakup, dropped out of school briefly in 1968, but then he re-enrolled and changed his major to psychology. During this time, he made a visit to his grandparents on the East Coast, and he found his birth certificate and saw that the space for father had been marked unknown, and a cousin had teased him about being illegitimate. He had always known something didn't seem right, like we talked about before. Why would you move with your sister? You know, there's a lot of questions there. Um, So, and, and plus, Luis was the one who was always taking care of him never Eleanor, who was supposed to be his mother. And um, being illegitimate was a tough pill for him to swallow. His friends tried to reassure Ted that being illegitimate didn't really matter. And he responded with, well, it's not you. That's the bastard. That would be, that is so hard for people to process And I feel like, I mean, I'm not saying anything about anyone that's had to make decisions like this, where you don't tell your, your child the truth about something. I mean, I, having children understand how you want to keep them safe, keep them feeling like they're, you know, have a quote unquote normal existence or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, now this is like a no big deal. Nobody cares kind of situation, but back then it was a big deal. And it's still always going to be a big deal for a person to find out that they've been lied to by their family, their whole lives. Like these are the people you trust the most in the world and to have something like that happen and find out that you've been lied to like that. I mean, that would be hard for anybody to deal with, I think. Especially finding out it would be, I feel like a lot better if his mother would have come clean, like, and talked to him about it. But the way that he found out by just finding his birth certificate and then having to put all the pieces together, I mean, not that it would make it, you know, way better because the lie is still the lie, but Mm -hmm. having, maybe they would never have told him, you know, so that, that, those kind of thoughts creep in. If I wouldn't have found this, what I've always thought 
So that's, that is tough. That is tough. And I get as a parent too. Yeah. You want to try to protect your kids. Um, and especially back then in the forties and fifties, it was yeah, more like difficult. It mattered. Yeah. 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 Back at UW, Ted started dating Elizabeth Cloffer, who was a divorcee from Utah In books and his writing. She could be called Meg Anders, Beth Archer, or Liz Kendall. She worked as a secretary at the School of Medicine on campus. She had a daughter, Molly, that Ted loved to play with. When the murders in the Pacific Northwest started to occur, she was one of the first to report Ted as a suspect. Yeah, so in the book that I'm reading, she goes by Meg. um, And it's the same kind of thing where she wanted to keep an alias so people couldn't find her. Um, So whenever I saw Elizabeth, I'm like, who the hell is this? (laughs) (laughs) because it's super hard to try to keep them um so yep in 1971 ted started working at seattle's crisis center taking phone calls from those at risk of suicide or facing other emotional difficulties there that's when he met ann rule another call center member and the two became friends she was much older than ted and it was just a platonic friendship He, or I'm sorry, her and Ted would stay friends throughout his entire life. She went on to write the book, The Stranger Beside Me, with details of her relationship with Bundy. She was quoted to say, Ted Bundy took lives, but he also saved lives. She said that Ted would often call her late at night to make sure she was safe. So reading, I'm not, I'm like almost halfway through the book um, Mm -hmm. and we just started getting into like where he escaped and and we'll talk about that later. But, um, but she always says that she is, was never afraid of Ted, that she always felt safe with him. And they would, they would have one of those friendships, like where you would go years without talking to somebody and then you talk to them again. And it's like, you never left each other. Um, So it was very much kind of like a sister brother type relationship or even like a mother son type Um, but yeah, and she was actually, it was hard for her. And I don't think I mentioned this later, but Anne rule, while she was also working at the crisis center, she was also working with the police and she was a true crime writer. So she would write for the newspaper and she would sell her works to to places. That's what she did. So it was very hard for her to try to separate herself from what was happening because she also was thinking this could have been her Ted, but then the friend side was like, there's no way he could hurt anybody, you know, especially working with him at the crisis center. So she's in a tough, uh, real tough spot. I mean, that's a very interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that book is uh, interesting in the sense that it's, it's a different way to look at who this person was and yeah, it's a really good relationship. Yeah, it's a really good book. So I highly You'll recommend have to let that. Let me borrow it when you're done. I can do that. <laughs> Might take me a little bit longer. It's a pretty big book. <laughs> thick. That's fine. I'm in the middle of something now, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1972, Ted graduated from the University of Washington with a degree in psychology. He had been accepted to law school in Utah. And this is when he also joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign and posed as a college student to shadow Evans' opponent, former Governor Al- Albert Rosalini. 
Evans appointed Bundy to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee, and after he was reelected, he hired Bundy as his assistant to Ross Davis, chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Davis described Ted as smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system. So he's definitely planting his seed to make it appear mm-hmm. like he's a upstanding member of society. Or he wanted to be. Yeah. And I think maybe he did really want that, all of that stuff, like the, the extravagant life, the, you know, the great yeah. job in government and all of that stuff. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree, agree with that. Local celebrity. While he was still dating Liz, he reconnected with his old flame, Diane. Ted was tailoring himself to be the man that Diane had wanted. At a party with his boss, he even introduced her as his fiance. Ted had planned all along, and this is where you start getting into like, this shit is cray. Yeah, he planned for Diane to fall in love with him for revenge purposes only because she had broken his heart so bad. He wanted to break her heart. Uh, After he returned to Washington, he stopped talking to Diane altogether, totally ghosted her. Finally, when Diane got a hold of him, she asked him why he had stopped talking to her. And he responded, I have no idea what you mean. And never spoke to her again. Lucky her. Lucky her. She dodged a huge bullet right there. Right. (laughs) Not a loss there. But also, what a weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, and, and that plays another question. You know, you said maybe he really did want to be successful. Or did he really just want to like put himself in a good social standing so he could screw this girl over did he do all of that to do that maybe yeah because yeah he looked like a politician Mm -hmm. weird in 1973 ted attended the university of puget sound law school but after a few months he stopped attending classes in january of 1974 the disappearances started January 4, 1974, Karen Sparks was an 18-year-old student and dancer at the University of Washington. She was asleep in her basement bedroom when Bundy snuck in and attacked her. He beat her violently, then sexually assaulted her when she heard her roommate, Chuck, starting to talk in his sleep, and then he ran off. Sparks was left unconscious and bleeding in the bed until 7 p.m. that night when her roommates came down to check on her. Mm. Yeah. This is where it starts getting crazy. So her roommate, Bob, had come down um, and Karen states, Bob came down and he saw blood on my pillow and he called 911 right away. And then he called my mother and he told my mother and he says, oh, you know, Karen must have fallen down the stairs. It's bad, you know, Sparks said. So there was a lot of blood. Why would you think she fell down the stairs? I mean, would you, your first no, instinct right. wouldn't be right. that somebody attacked her, especially yeah, whenever you were in the house. There. Yeah. Yeah. You were there and nobody else is there at the time. Yeah. So no one realized how bad this was until she reached the hospital. Karen remained unconscious for 10 days. When she woke, she found her dad and her roommate, Bob sitting around the hospital. I asked my dad, I said, dad, what happened? What happened? And he says, oh, you had a little bump in your head. Sparks remembered. My dad just tried to keep it as upbeat as possible. 
She later learned what really happened to her, but she had no memory of the attack and was not able to give them any clues about who assaulted her. She remembers that night that she saw an older man staring at her in the laundromat. When she would look at him, he would look away. She remembered reading in her bedroom and thought she saw a man peering in her bedroom. She suffered 50% hearing loss and 40% vision loss as a result of the attack. She had to relearn how to walk with the help of her father who never left her side. Yeah. They wanted to keep her in the hospital to rehabilitate her. Um, and her dad, man, she, he was a good guy. He did not want her to be in the hospital. He was right by her side the whole time. And he's the one that taught her how to relearn everything because he couldn't stand to see, you know, his baby girl in the hospital. So kudos mm-hmm. to that's how you, you be a dad. That's awesome. That is so freaky that she saw him yeah. at the laundromat staring at her and then later saw him in the window. Yeah. That is nightmare fuel. I am yes, not about it that is. shit. <laughs> well, just wait. There's more. <laughs> like an That's why you keep a gun, my friends. <laughs> one, month, <laughs> one month later, 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy, another college student, disappeared from her bedroom under the similar circumstances. She gave weather and ski reports at the local radio station, and her coworkers thought something terrible must have happened to her whenever she didn't report to work. Ted broke into Linda's apartment in the early morning, knocked her unconscious, dressed her in new clothes, and carried her out to the car. Police found a bloody nightgown hanging in the closet with a ring of dried blood around the neck and bloody sheets on the bed, but no sign of Linda. The amount of blood left did not indicate she would have bled to death. 14 months later, part of her skull and jaw bones would be found on Taylor Mountain, where Ted liked to dump bodies. Taylor Mountain was an hour from Linda's home. They believe someone gained entry to her by the extra key that her roommates and her kept in their mailbox. Oh. A bad hiding a place. Idea. Yeah, just be locked out. <laughs> or get one of those just rocks or like something. See, my next not- door neighbors have my my extra keys because I That's lock smart. myself out all the time <laughs> and they're nice yeah <laughs> they're not gonna come in and, yeah. and kill us and I was gonna say too if somebody carried my body out to my car my neighbors would be on that shit <laughs> uh-huh. it's good to have good neighbors <laughs> it is <laughs> definitely Karen Sparks father thought from the beginning that her attacker was the same one who abducted Linda Three days after Linda's disappearance, a male voice called into 911 saying, listen and listen carefully. The person who attacked that girl on the 8th of last month, the person who took Linda Healy away are one and the same. He was outside both houses. He was seen. The police never got the guy's name. Creepy. So who did that? Do you think it was Karen Sparks's dad or do you think Ted Bundy called on himself? So I would think it's probably Karen Sparks dad because he never did that in any of the other ones. Okay. So I, I, that's what I believe. I don't know that to be true, but it would make sense for him trying to link those two together. Yeah. And get them to link, have some sort of linkage. Yeah. Yeah. March 1974, Donna Gail Mason, a 19-year-old student at Evergreen State College, south of Seattle, disappeared on her way to a campus concert. 
Her body was never found, but Bundy later stated he had burned her skull in the fireplace of his girlfriend's, Elizabeth Colpfeffer. Bundy later confessed to Detective Robert Keppel, of all the things I did to Liz, this is probably the one she's least likely to forgive me for. Poor Liz. So not poor Donna. Mm -hmm. Poor girlfriend who I burned a skull in her fireplace when she had a child. Which is also messed up. Don't do that. Yeah. But yeah, but what a very weird, selective, poor Thing to be sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no. One month later, in April 1974, Susan Elaine Rancourt was an 18-year-old who disappeared on a college campus in Central Washington State College, east of Seattle. Susan was a smart cookie. She was majoring in biology and had a 4.0 grade point average. She was a hard worker and once worked two full-time jobs in the summer to pay for her tuition. All of Ted's prior victims had brunette hair, but Susan was blonde-haired and blue-eyed. At 8 p.m. on, sorry, on 8 p.m. at April 17th, Susan had put a load of laundry in the washing machine and headed to her dorm advisors meeting. She was going to see a German film afterward with her friend, but no one saw her at the meeting. Her clothes did not leave the washing machine until another student got angry and took them out and laid them on the table. Police did a massive search, but were unable to find Susan. Students racked their brains to see if they could remember anything about that night that she disappeared. And some said they had been approached by a man named Ted who had his arm in a sling. And what, like, he was so, like, he didn't care. He used his own name. Yeah. Like, you really don't care that much. You're just going to, they're not going to catch me. I'll be Ted. Yeah, right from jump. Like, call me Ted. I look like Ted and yeah. I am Ted. Yeah, you'd think, what an easy thing to lie about and and right. why bother? Yeah, he could be anybody yeah. else except for Ted. And he mm-hmm. chooses and he Ted. Chose, he chose Ted. Yeah, very strange. May 1974, Roberta Kathleen Parks was a student at Oregon State University. She was on her way Um, from her dorm room to meet some friends at a coffee shop, but never showed up. This is the first of Ted's victims in Oregon. Pieces of her skull were later found on Taylor Mountain in Washington, along with many others. In June 1974, Ted struck twice, and witnesses near the area say that they saw a man displaying some sort of handicap asking women for help. So they last saw 22-year-old Brenda Ball at 2 a.m., on the morning of June 1st outside the Flame Tavern, which is south of Seattle, talking to a man in a sling. Brenda was known as a free spirit and frequently hitchhiked if she needed to go somewhere, which is a lot of people did that back then. Mm -hmm. Because of her going wherever the wind took her, her disappearance wasn't reported until June 17th, which is two and a half weeks after she went missing. Mm. Yeah. June 11th, 1974, Georgianne Hawkins went with her sorority sister to a party on campus. The two drank a few drinks, but Georgianne did not stay long because she had a Spanish final to study for. Before leaving the party, she told her sorority sister that she was going to the Beta Theta Pi house to say goodnight to her boyfriend and to pick up some notes from him. Unlike Brenda, Georgianne was a very cautious person. The streets near the campus housing were well lit and there were a lot of people she knew out and about. Georgianne's 
boyfriend's fraternity house was six houses down from her sorority house, so only about 90 feet. Georgianne met her boyfriend at Beta Theta Pi around 12.30 a.m., and she was there for about half an hour. She left the fraternity house. One of the fraternity brothers, Dwayne Covey, heard the back door shut and looked out his window to see Georgianne. The two chatted for a few minutes, and she continued to walk back to her house. That is the last anyone had seen her. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Six houses. That's not That's not a far walk. No, he definitely must have snatched her up quick. All right, so things start changing now. Okay, so July 14th, 1974, Ted kidnapped two more women, Janice Ott and Mary Nasland. This time, he did not pick them up from a college, and he didn't pick them up at night. He picked them up in broad daylight at Lake Sam Mamish State Park in Washington. Ted used his typical routine of having his left arm in a sling and introduced himself as Ted. He needed help rigging his sailboat to his car. He had tried to lure another girl to help him, and she made it all the way down to his brown Volkswagen Beetle, but there was no sailboat in sight. When she asked about it, he told her it was at his parents' house up the hill, but she got uncomfortable and ran away. A little while later, she saw another woman walking beside the man to the parking lot. This is one of those instances where I hope I would make the right choice, Mm -hmm. but because I am self-conscious, I don't know if I would, because at this point she should have been like, Hey, yeah. Hey girl, get away from that guy. He's not okay. But she didn't say anything because she wasn't sure and she didn't know she just had a bad feeling but like she could have you know well and and it's true too that I would hope because I'm a helper like if I see somebody struggling at the grocery store I'm gonna help them like I'll Girl, help you know them. I'm a helper too I yeah. get myself in sorts of trouble <laughs> it does and Josh looks at me like why do you do that it's like well because they needed help <laughs> and yeah, I Brian's can help the them same way <laughs> and and I don't know if I would have made it out alive. I mean, honestly, I, I, if I saw somebody struggling, I would have probably helped him too. Right. I don't know. I feel like I'm, I try to be pretty conscious of like, if there's people around yeah. and like of my surroundings. So if there's people around, then I'm all about helping. I think if I'm in a, a more dangerous situation, I might not, but in this case they were at a lake, like there were With people. tons of people, tons of people. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's scary. So this woman went to the police and the woman described a man having sandy blonde hair, 5'10", 160 pounds with a brown Volkswagen bug. So like, that's a lot. Yeah. And good for her. Good for for remembering everything Uh and paying attention. Yeah. Good for her. They come up with a police sketch to share with the public and it looks like them. Yes, it does. It's pretty good. It is Mm -hmm. pretty good. So Ann Rule, which we talked about his friend in call, um, at the crisis center named him as a suspect. This was not the first time that Ted had been mentioned to the police. And even though he did drive a bronze Volkswagen bug, he was not fully investigated. So he was named, I think three times um, by people around him because that's not like a, even though Volkswagens were like a big thing, a brown one, like, I don't, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. odd. That's an odd color. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, the sketch looks 
pretty pretty good um and he has sandy blonde hair he's 5'10 and 160 pounds yeah and his name is ted exactly (laughs) i feel like if i was in the police i'd be investigating everybody named ted especially if they had a brown bug but yeah i think back then you know they got inundated with all of these things and it just got skipped over so that happens a lot unfortunately Mm -hmm. Ted had been accepted into the University of Utah as a law student and he moved there in August 1974 and it didn't take him long to start targeting women there so if we just back up like that was a lot of people in a very short amount of time and it gets like dude was busy and it gets shorter like he's ramping up you know it doesn't take as long the next time for him to so i feel like he's just feels like he's untouchable by now because he's i mean he did it in broad daylight so much yeah and is running around telling everybody his name and stuff yeah Mm -hmm. that's crazy so it didn't take him long to start targeting women there october 2nd 1974 16 year old cheerleader nancy wilcox went out to buy a pack of gum and vanished witnesses said they saw thought they saw her riding in a volkswagen bug and there's too many people saying the same things. Like, come on. Right. I mean, come on. Um, October 10th, Ted approached Rhonda Stapley, who was a first-year pharmacy student waiting on the bus to take her back to the University of Utah when Ted pulled up and offered her a ride in his Volkswagen. Rhonda agreed, and when Ted missed the turn to where she was supposed to be going, Rhonda started getting really nervous. Ted drove her up to Big Cottonwood Canyon, where he repeatedly strangled and raped her. So I just watched a um, a show on serial killers, and this Rhonda was a wit- like she was there talking in this in oh, this really? um, yeah, and he she said that he would lay his whole body on top of her and get her to the point where she was going to pass out, and then he'd let off. And it's like, just, he would do that constantly, constantly. Um, so one time he did this and Ted thought that she had passed out. He went to his vehicle and Rhonda woke up and ran. She jumped into the nearby river and let the current take her as far away from Ted as possible. So it was like a rip, like there were, it was like the, not the rapids, but you know, it was a pretty, crazy stream and she yeah and she jumped in it and she got away instead of talking to the police Rhonda did not share her story until almost 40 years later she was a devout Mormon and was embarrassed by how stupid she had been for getting in the car she also wanted to forget about the event and just pretend like it didn't happen and the saddest part about her saying that is that because she was such a devout Mormon, they believe that instead of giving up your virtue, it would be better to basically die. And since she was raped, even though it wasn't her fault, like that stigma, she just didn't want to right, wrong or indifferent. Like that's sad that she felt that way and that she couldn't mm-hmm. come forward. Yeah. And just to be embarrassed for making the wrong decision of getting into the car and all of that. Yeah. Just the to feel like that is very sad mm-hmm. and too bad because yeah 
because it could have been i mean another one that they didn't investigate do anything about (laughs) yeah but you know still maybe and just it makes me sad that people that are our victims have had something happen to them. I mean, this is still a thing where you don't want to report things. You don't want to say things. And that hurts my heart because honestly, and anytime that somebody is a victim, it doesn't matter what happened to them. It's not their fault. Mm -hmm. And there should not be any stigma around that. There should not be any judgment around something like that happening to you. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I mean, this is in the seventies. So things aren't, the same. I'm sure it probably would have gotten turned around on her somehow, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but I mean, well, even now there's, there's fear for doing things and mm-hmm. stigmas around all of that. There's people are afraid to say things happen to them. Um, so, you know, it still happens, even though it's, I would say definitely more acceptable to, the general public you know people aren't quite as bad but right I don't know okay so let's see here so on one week after Rhonda's abduction Melissa Ann Smith who was 17 was the daughter of a police chief she disappeared after meeting a friend to get pizza. She had planned to walk home and grab some clothes and then head to her friend's house for a slumber party. Melissa never made it home. Her body was found nine days later in Summit Park in the mountains east of Salt Lake City. Hmm. And she was, a, I mean, I'm sure that her dad would scare the crap out of her with stuff being a police mm-hmm. chief. And he got one over on her. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it too, like back then, definitely. But even when we were younger, like I used to walk places all the time. Oh yeah. By myself at night. With no phone. I mean. Yeah. No phone, no nothing. I don't know. It wasn't unheard of or weird to do. Um, October 31st, 1974, Laura Ann Aim disappeared after leaving a cafe Her family didn't realize she was missing for another few days and hikers found her frozen body in the mountains a month later. I'm sure the guilt of her parents are crazy for not realizing realizing she was missing. I mean, that could very easily happen. Mm -hmm. November 8th, 1974, Ted posed as a police officer. So now he's, you know, he's starting to pretend he's the law and he named himself Rosalind. He approached, no. yeah. Now we're <laughs> Not switching Ted. it up. <laughs> Officer <laughs> Ted has a nice <laughs> ring to it. He approached an 18-year-old Carol DeRanch at the Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah. He ter- told her that her car was broken into and she needed to go to the police station. Carl followed, or I'm sorry, Carol followed Bundy into his car, but realized quickly that something wasn't quite right. Um, they weren't driving towards the police station was one indicator ted's friendly attitude shifted and suddenly he was super cold and she would try to talk to him and he would not answer her at all was he in a police car i don't think so i think he was in his bug off duty officer ted then mind your business officer ted right (laughs) right so he forced her wrist into a pair of handcuffs and threatened her with a gun but carol broke out of the car and ran for her life She stopped a passing couple driving nearby and they brought her to the police station. 
She couldn't place Rosalind's face in any of their mugshots. A few hours later, Ted approached 17-year-old Debbie Kent after a performance of a high school play in Bountiful, Utah, and was successful in killing her. So Debbie's parents refused to turn off. This is so sad. Okay. Debbie's parents refused to turn off their home's porch light ever since she was abducted. In an interview they did in 2000, 2000, Kent's mother said, we always left the porch light on when they went out at night and the last one home always turned it off. I will never turn it off. As long as I'm here, I will never turn it off. And I'm crying because that's so Me sad. Too. Oh, that is that so hurts. sad. That does hurt. Oh, that is so sad. That is, uh, that is one of the things after becoming a parent that has gotten harder with any of these kinds of stories. Like I always cared about, yeah. you know, people dying, but now it's like, when you think about your, your kids, even when they're grown, I'll tell you right now, your babies are always your babies. And that's so hard. And I think the hardest part too, like losing a child is something I hope I never have to imagine. That is the worst of the worst, but then not knowing where they are, like there would be not that you could really get closure, but just, you would never know. You would always have that hope always until the day you died, that they would just come walking through the door, even though, you know, right. it's probably never going to happen, but holding on to that hope. I mean, Oh, that just eats you up. Yeah, Terrible. There's some closure there when you know what happened. Right. That, that you can move on. Don't get, yeah. Yeah. Ted had made a bit of a mistake with Debbie's abduction and had left a clue in the parking lot. It was a key that matched the handcuffs that Carol escaped with earlier that day. The police. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this should be obvious, guys. Let's get her <laughs> shit together. The police weren't able to connect Bundy to Kent and other similar kidnappings, but Carol played an essential role in his conviction in 1976 when she delivered a testimony identifying him as the man who kidnapped and assaulted her. After Debbie's abduction, Bundy spent time in Colorado, where on January 12, 1975, he kidnapped 23-year-old Karen Campbell in a hotel in Aspen. Now, this is just, like, crazy to me. Karen was a registered nurse who was in town for a ski trip and to attend a medical convention. So all of her family, her fiancé, and her kids were waiting in the lobby. She wanted a magazine, so she went back to their room to grab a magazine, and she vanished, and nobody ever saw her again. That's friggin' terrifying that somebody can just snatch you up at the hotel. Right. Like, that is not, and that's in a public place, too. Like, I've stayed in hotels by myself before. Like, nobody, I just, it it boggles my mind. Yeah, this guy does not give a shit. That's crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. March 1975, Julie Cunningham was a 26-year-old Colorado ski instructor who went to meet her roommate at a local bar. Bundy approached her and presented to need help with his crutches before kidnapping her. So these are just like, now it's just turning into every month. So that was in March. April 1975, after a fight with her husband in Grand Junction, Colorado, 24-year-old Denise Alverson hopped on her bike and headed to her parents' house, but she never made it. Later, investigators found her bicycle via a, under a viaduct, which I'm assuming viaduct. is something. It's, yeah. 
it's like a water thing yeah like a sewer thing yeah yeah yeah, like a great kind of situation I think I mean don't quote me here but I think um so yeah the next month May 6 1975 Ted killed his youngest victim 12 year old Lynette Culver from Pocatello Idaho he had spotted her earlier that day playing at Alameda Junior High he raped her, murdered her in a hotel bathtub, and threw her in a river. Her body has never been found. Just the simple, like, discarding of people, like. And a 12-year-old. She's a baby. That's how old my niece is. hmm June 1975, Susan Curtis was attending a Mormon youth conference, conference at Brigham Young University when Ted abducted her. She was 15 years old and lived in the same neighborhood and attended the same school as Debbie Kent, which is like, should be a clue. Um, Susan was the last person that Ted confessed to killing when he asked for a tape recorder on his way to his execution. Her body was never found. August 16, 1975, Bundy was arrested by Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward in Granger. Hayward had seen Bundy cruising a residential neighborhood in pre-dawn hours and sped up after he saw the patrol car. Hayward noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats and searched the car. He found a ski mask, a second mask made of pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items they assumed were used for burglary. If only, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's a mess. That's like a starter kit for all the crimes. So, of course, in true Ted fashion, he explained everything away. That the ski mask was for skiing, the handcuffs he found in a dumpster, and the rest were just normal everyday items that everybody carried around. No, no. (laughs) Detective Jerry Thompson remembered a similar suspect and car description from November 1974 with the Durant kidnapping and Bundy's name was mentioned during Cole Pfeffer's December 1974 phone call where she suspected Ted. They got a search warrant for his apartment and found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a check mark by the Wildwood Inn and a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play and Bountiful where Deborah Kent had disappeared. How he got that, I have no idea. Um, yeah. They did not have enough evidence to detain Bundy, which is nuts, and he was released. Bundy later said that the searchers missed his collection of Polaroid pictures of his victims, and he destroyed those once he was released. So I hate, guys. I hate that. But I think right now, so we've gone through all of the murders so far. Mm-hmm. There are more. Um, but I think we're going to cut this episode here. And then next week we will talk about him being in jail Um, We have some escapes that we will talk about his time in Florida, which is horrific. Um, And then just all of his stuff with death row and confessions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a good place to stop because this is where he should have definitely been stopped. Been done like way a long time ago though. Really? Right. For sure. With all the descriptions they had, but yeah. Yeah. So we hope you enjoyed 
um, episode 68, uh, Ted Bundy part one. And we will see you next week with Ted Bundy part two. Yeah. See y'all next time. Bye. Bye.